Uh, it's going to be a few minutes before we get there, but you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Uh, this is one of those sermons where uh, I think it's better if we start where we are, and uh, a little bit later we will come to what God says about us. But don't worry, we're, we're going to get there definitely because, well, what we have to say about ourselves just is really not not worth it if we don't hear from God. I was... Several months ago, I was looking at the calendar, and I plan out series ahead of time. Now, sometimes it doesn't go according to plan, and I have to shift around and move things later, but but I try to get an idea of where I'm going. And I saw this five-week gap between Christmas time and homecoming, and I, or this, excuse me, it's a seven-week gap. So I, I, I was thinking, what can I do in seven weeks? And I started looking at some some Bible books, and well, no, I've, I've kind of done some of those recently in the past, and some of them are way too long. You know, you, you don't want to start an in-depth series on Romans or Hebrews when you only have seven weeks. That's just, that's, that's, not, a, that, that's not good. And I began to realize as, as I'm listening to different things and watching news and, and just looking at the culture around us, we have been spending a lot of time recently talking about God, but we are inundated with false gods. And so I thought it might be good to do a study in contrasts, so to speak, to look, instead of looking at the real thing, to look at the knockoff imitations that we are often cajoled into worshiping. And so for this series, we're going to be looking at the gods of our age. And boy, there are a plethora of them. We could spend all of a year or more just dealing with different kinds of gods that people want us to worship. But I want to focus in on a few of the main ones. But before we get to the gods of the age, those gods around that that people purport and that we should be focused on, uh, instead, I want us to look inward because the god of the self is the ever-present false god. In fact, um, you could say that the God of the self has been around from the Garden of Eden. Remember when the servant or the serpent comes to tempt Eve and he says, did God really say that you couldn't eat of the fruit of any of these trees? And he says, no, no, he just said, you can't eat of the fruit of this one tree. You can have any of the other ones, but you can't have this one. You can't touch it or you will die. Now, she's already gone into error because she's already added to God's commandment. However, what's interesting is the serpent's reply. Genesis 3 verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. She wanted to eat the fruit. But the enticement, what really took her over the edge, what really made her take a long, hard look at that fruit to finally decide to go in and grab it, was that, was that little phrase back in verse 5? You will be like God. Never mind that God had already created her in his image. Never mind that God already said, you are like me. Never mind that. 
there's something you're hiding from me, God. You see, we talk about all these gods, and we're going to talk about them in this series. All these false things that, that people try to get us to worship. We talk about the God of affirmation that, that not only seeks us to let people do what they want to do, but to actually affirm it, to, to give our approval to them for doing things that we know are wrong. There's a God of utopia that demands that everybody bend their wills to its will, to live by its standards, its virtues, its dream world, where with enough education and enough control, everyone will be happy. The God of secularism that claims that it merely just wants to level the playing field so there's no one God that's preferred, but in reality, it wants to be the God in control. It demands atheism because it can't tolerate a real divine. Then there's the God of relativism. Truth is shifting. There's nothing absolute. Whatever the cultural standard is of the day, or however you feel, becomes true. Always in flux, but we always have to flux with it and give in to its demands. Probably one of my favorite false gods, the God of science, register trademark, all rights reserved. Not actual science where you're really trying to find truth and, and you're, you're, you're testing things and you really want to know how the world works. No, I'm talking about the kind of science that demands that everything go by a certain narrative and if it doesn't, we'll throw it out. We won't publish it. We won't talk about it. But if it does, if it lines up with what we want it to say, then buddy, we will jam it down your throats even if the data backing it up is suspect or non-existent. We don't care. It's that kind of science. We're going to talk about all these gods. But first, let's deal with the one that we've been dealing with for several thousand years. Let's deal with the one in our own mirrors. Rene Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. For him, that was the fundamental deduction. He said, this is the first thing you've got to get. You've got to actually get your own existence first. Otherwise, all the other philosophical things are just pointless. You've got to actually know that you exist before you can know anything else is true. And that's exactly how we act. We start with ourselves. Naturally, in our fallen state, in our sinful nature, we start with us. We make ourselves to be the I am. You know, those words speak far more than just existence. They speak of identity. I am Michael. I am a husband. I am a father. They speak of perception, how we see ourselves. I'm middle-aged. I'm introverted. They speak of position. I'm a pastor. I'm a restaurant worker. I am is a very versatile statement, isn't it? But I am also speaks of our own desire to worship ourselves. If you, if you were to uh, get all the gods, all the false gods that we worship, and you put them all together, the Zeus of them all would be self. And it's the fact that we tend so heavily to worship ourselves that I want to focus on. And specifically, I want to show us, these are not exhaustive, but three different errors to our own self-worship. Things that we do to worship ourselves. And sometimes it might be a statement that you've heard someone say or something very close to this. Or it might just be the way that you feel, but you wouldn't necessarily put it into these words. First, we base our identities in ourselves. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the, there was an American sociologist by the name of Philip Reif. 
He uh, studied a lot of uh, behaviorism, of Sigmund Freud, and, and wrote a lot about some of those theories and taking them to the next level. But he noticed something in the way that, that men, in, especially in the 60s, 70s, and on beyond that, even to our modern day, how, how we define ourselves very differently than we used to. People used to define themselves based on the external things. They would look at, uh, um, for example, their place in the community, and that would define who they are. They, their position and, and the way that they interact with the community, that would define who they are. They would look at their religion, the transcendent truth that they seek to conform themselves to, and that would be their basis of identity. They would look at their economic value, how they can provide for their family and, and the, the level of success that they reach, and that would define their value. But now more and more, and especially true today, men find their value in themselves rather than in some external force, some external uh, thing or, or some sort of institution or organization or anything outside of themselves. We look to ourselves. We look to ourselves to determine what truth is. We look to ourselves to determine who we really are. And so anything that, that makes us very away from that. Anything that makes us conform to some outside standard automatically has to be rejected. That's why you see some educators making TikTok videos about how their students have to use their preferred pronouns and how upset they are when their student in third grade doesn't call them Zer or whatever it happens to be. It's for that reason that we find uh, uh, people fighting against, we find school boards or we find uh, political organizations fighting against people that hold their traditional values because those traditional values put a, a standard that is objective, that is outside of themselves, and they can't see anything around that. This whole idea of transgenderism comes from this wanting to be true to who I am, but they're only looking within. Even 15 years ago, if you said, I'm a man in a woman's body, people would look at you like you're nuts. But now we have to accept it. It's truth. That comes from worship of self. That comes from finding our identity in me instead of in something other than me. And can I tell you, when you find your identity in you instead of in the one who made you, you're just going to find that you're empty. And that's the problem. Whenever there is an objective standard, their basis for identity crumbles apart. That's why the fight is so harsh. It, it, it said, the more they react to you, the more you're hitting the nail on the head, right? To admit that they're wrong would be to completely lose who they view themselves to be. It would be an existential crisis. And so at all costs, they have to do whatever they can to maintain that identity in themselves. But let's not just point the finger over there because I said this was a problem with the folks in our mirrors. We can substitute religiosity for this as well. We can base our identity in the things that we do. We can base our identity in how much we've done, how many classes we've taught, or how many things, that, how many books of the Bible we've read this year, or all these different things. We can find our identities in anything and everything other than God, and we are putting it in the wrong thing. Because in reality, all of it is still putting our identities in ourselves. What I can do, what I've achieved. Second error of self-worship. Let me get a drink. My voice ain't going to make it.
The second era of self-worship this morning, we do whatever it takes to be comfortable. It doesn't matter how much effort we go through just so long as we end up comfortable. We will walk around, we'll walk around the entire planet just to avoid doing one little un uncomfortable thing that we don't want to do. Maybe you remember, I know none of y'all did this, especially not Daryl, because he was, he was a perfect kid. Um, but do you remember ever trying to get out of doing an easy chore at home? And man, you went through way more trouble than that chore was. I mean, you, you, you did all kinds of stuff to avoid having to just pick up a few clothes off the floor or take a, a bag of trash out to the can outside or whatever it happened to be, right? Sometimes we'll do that. We will go around the world to avoid being uncomfortable. And in the process, we'll do a whole lot more than we have to do. We base our identities in ourselves, and that leads us to pursue whatever we want. And what do we want most? Comfort. Now, maybe, maybe you're not built that way. Maybe for you, it's something different. Maybe it's pleasure. Same thing holds true, though. We will go to extremes to get the things we want to get and to avoid the things we don't. Comfort is a grave danger. It is an intoxicant, and it's worse than drugs or alcohol. Drugs and alcohol, they've got AA programs, and they've got, they've got things that you can do to overcome an addiction. It's hard, but you can do it. With the right help, you can do it. If you know someone addicted, there's hope for them. If you're addicted, there's hope for you. But if you know someone addicted, there are programs, and there are things out there that will help. But when's the last time you heard of a Comfortholics Anonymous meeting or a... Uh, a home that's meant to care for the person who's addicted to pleasure. It, that, we, we don't deal with those kinds of things well. It's comfort that makes us not want to rock the boat, keep silent when we should speak up. I'm thinking of German churches in Nazi Germany. One in particular was, had the railroad tracks running right behind them. And as the, and as the train would come through carrying Jewish and, and other prisoners toward a concentration camp, I can't remember which camp it was, but as it would come through, people on that train would be screaming, yelling at the top of their lungs for help. And this little church, this little church right there, it was so loud that even in the building, while they're singing songs, the yells and the screams of people flooded the auditorium. They, they could not hear the music because they could hear the screams of these people. They didn't want to rock the boat, so they just sang louder. Is it that bad? Yeah, it's that bad. Comfort is causing many of us to turn blind eyes to injustice. Some of us treat a homeless problem in a California city as, well, they deserve it, doing all those crackpot policies. But what about people that are really suffering on the streets? Is really the best we can do is just talk about it on TV shows and Talk about how dumb those Democrats are because look how messed up things are. Is that the best we can do? Well, it's comfortable. It's easy. Comfort makes us prefer smooth talking, shiny teeth, people on the TV. They preach all kinds of nice messages, but don't talk about the gospel. Don't talk about our need for a savior. Don't talk about the responsibilities we have as a church. Comfort can cause some of us, rather than preferring those, to prefer pastors that yell and scream, that do nothing but preach fire and brimstone down on those wicked sinners, but never challenge us either.
You see, comfort is not the God. Let me, let me make that clear. Notice that I'm not preaching about the God of comfort. I'm preaching about the God of self because comfort is the worship that the God of self requires of us. It's our form of worship. Comfort is really our form of worship to ourselves. That's all that it is. And when we see it that way, and when we see it as an offering that the God of self demands, we recognize that we're not worshiping the ease. We're not worshiping the luxury. We're not worshiping the nice, comfortable things to lay on and sit on and, and the nice, beautiful houses to live in and great cars to drive. We're not worshiping that stuff. We're worshiping us. And all that stuff just merely becomes the religious paraphernalia all centered on self-worship. The last error of self-worship. First, we find our identities in ourselves. Second, we do whatever it takes to be comfortable. Third, we make ourselves to be God. See, what this really boils down to is it's all about me. Oh, how I love me some me. Oh, how I love me some me. I'll live my life how I want it to be. Oh, how I love me. Yes, I do love me. Oh, how I love me some me. It's exactly what we do, y'all. Unfortunately, Y'all ever heard the expression like father, like son? We're not the first to think that way. Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Now he's not talking about the actual day star. He's talking about the day star. The, The messenger of light, Lucifer. This is Satan. Watch what he says. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And boy, don't that sound familiar because that's exactly what we do when we are worshiping ourselves. We make ourselves to ascend. We make ourselves to be on high. We make ourselves to be like God. You will be like God, the serpent said, and that was enough to get Eve interested. And by the way, I think he got Adam interested there too. Reading between the lines, we don't hear Adam say anything, so we don't know what's going on in his head. But I'm pretty sure when he heard you will be like God, he thought, hey, I will ascend. I will be like the most high. That's really what sinful man wants. You know the problem with that? We make terrible gods. In fact, he even says so. Look at the next verse but you are brought down to Sheol. You want to be up high, but that's not your place. You're going to be brought low. What is it about pride goes before a fall? That's why. Because pride makes you want to get to a place that you're not supposed to be. And God says, no, that's my spot. So what do we do? How how do we put self in its rightful place? How do we make sure that we are not worshiping ourselves? Now, the answer might surprise you. The answer comes in Luke chapter 9. The, 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 the whole point that Jesus is making, and this is kind of interesting, in Luke chapter 9, just uh, back in verse 10, he feeds 5,000 people. Got a, got a few loaves of bread, a couple fish, no problem. Send them all down in, in, in groups of 50 and 100. I'll take care of the food. Actually, he doesn't say that first, does he? He says, give them something to eat. The disciples are like, hey, all these people need to eat. We need to send them so they can go get some food. And Jesus says, well, you give them something to eat. And they're like, what? You know how much that would cost? We don't have the money for that. Just sit them down. And Jesus takes a little bit of food and turns it into 
more than enough. Little is much when God is in it, right? But then something interesting happens. Luke, immediately after that, jumps to a whole different time. He's, he's praying and he's with the disciples, but he's kind of praying by himself. I imagine they're kind of close by, but he's the one silent in prayer and they're kind of looking around and, and you know, who knows what they're talking about. Jesus suddenly looks up from his prayer, looks at him and says, who do the crowds say that I am? Well, you know, some say you're this prophet and you're that person or here are all these different things people say. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes his confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? And then he says, don't tell anybody this because I'm going to be rejected, handed over to the elders. I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to be raised. Now, why would Luke do this? Why would he put two totally different stories together? On the one hand, he's feeding 5,000 people. On the other hand, he's asking, who, do, who does everybody say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, don't tell anybody this because I'm going to be killed and will rise again. These stories have nothing to do with each other. They happen at totally different times in his ministry. So why does Luke put them side by side? I know you know the answer. We talked about this in Sunday school. So he's like, oh, I know this one. You better know the answer. What's the answer, Mitchell? Content. There's something related in these two stories. There's a, there's a string of content that is coming from the first story through this one. And what is he getting across? He's getting across the nature of discipleship. That it's not about being there for all the big fancy things. Most of the crowds want to be around Jesus because he's teaching neat stuff and because he's doing all kinds of great miracles. I mean... If you saw him feed 5,000 people with a little bit of food, wouldn't you be excited for his next appearance? But in reality, the way of following Jesus is hard. These folks, many of them just wanted what they could get out of it. They were still worshiping self. How do we put it in its rightful place? Well, Jesus tells us how. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Then verse 25, by the way, says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? In a culture, Vince Vitale writes, that says, Be yourself. Look after yourself. Express yourself. Trust yourself. Treat yourself. Jesus says, Deny yourself. I must deny myself. If I'm going to put self in the right place, I must deny my self. Now, what does that word deny mean? What does deny mean? Go ahead. Go on and answer. It's fine. What does deny mean? You can say it in one word. Don't do it. Well, that's more than one word, but yeah, pretty much. No. No. To deny yourself refers to refuse to give attention or concern for something. It's to completely disregard. You, you might think of it this way. Denying yourself would be like treating yourself like that mess in the corner of the, of the basement. You never really go down there. You never really look at it. You don't even think about it until you go down there and you see it and you're like, man, I need to clean that up one day. And then you never think about it again until the next time you see it, right? That's denying self. To put yourself in such an awkward corner in some random place that you don't even look and you don't even care to look. That's what Jesus says to do with ourselves. Deny yourself. Completely deny it. Imagine you go to the doctor this week and the doctor says you need to go on a diet. Maybe it's because of a health problem. You're diabetic or you have some sort of food intolerance or something like that, an allergy, something like that. 
Or perhaps you just, well, you've been eating a little too much and you need to slim down. Okay? Whatever the reason is, you will find very quickly that the hardest part of the diet is denying yourself. Because, let's just face it, until you're on a diet, you do not know what it means to deny yourself. I, I've recently confirmed that I have problems with lactose. Now, let me tell you a little bit about me. I am, two of my basic food groups are cheese and ice cream. This is not good. I'm telling you, I am struggling. Now, I've been, for years, I have been less on the ice cream. So I've actually been doing much better on that end. But cheese, man, do you know how much stuff has milk and cheese in it? And you know my favorite kind of food is Italian? And you can't make Italian food without milk and cheese. You might be able to make something, but, but not much. Y'all, diets don't work unless you can deny yourself. They just don't. No matter what the reason is, no matter what kind of diet it is, it does not work if you can't say no. But you know, we don't just need to diet in our food choices. We need to deny ourselves in a lot of other ways too. What about those unhealthy relationships where people are just pulling you away from God, tearing you down? And I don't mean in the sense of like a drill sergeant, like tears you down to build you up. I'm talking about just tearing you down just because. Maybe, maybe, maybe you think, well, I've got pretty good relationships. But you know, I got this one kid and he always needs help. He's, he's 45. And you know, if, if I don't, if I don't help him out, if I don't give him some money or I don't do things, then, you know, he's really going to struggle. And I don't want to see my grandkids go without new shoes every school year. And, uh, you know, I don't want to, you know, I want to help them out. What about those unhealthy thought patterns? I just can't do it. I mean, I'm not good for anything. Or the exact opposite. I'm awesome. I know everything. And I'm humble too. Y'all, we got to deny ourselves. And we got to deny ourselves first because we won't be able to follow Jesus until we do. Second way to put self in his place. Once you're denying yourself, and that is a continual thing, by the way, that is not a one-time-fits-all. Deny, 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 deny. You know why? Because self keeps coming back. And so you have to keep telling them no. It's like a little little brat that just, just take no for an answer. I said no. Go away. Once we deny ourselves, the next step is to take up our cross. And by the way, did you notice how often you take up that cross? Daily. Can, can, I, can I change that word in Scripture to something that I think might fit me a little better? constantly. This is not something that we can do every now and then. This is not something that we can do on a semi-regular basis. This is not something we can do. It's not like balancing your, your investments where you do it like once a year or something like that. This is daily. This is constantly. How often, how often, how often do we spend time with God and within a few minutes, we're back to worshiping ourselves? How often do we, do we put so much effort into something and then a few minutes later, it, it, we just completely lose it? We have to keep taking up our cross. And that means some suffering is going to be involved. Remember, I said a few weeks ago that for God to come, there has to be some rending. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. God is always going to tear something up when he comes because something needs to be torn up. And unfortunately, I are one. Unfortunately, it's me that he needs to work on. If he is going to, to come to me in, in any kind of special way, 
If he is going to indwell with me with, with a, a, an additional amount of power than what he normally gives or in any kind of special way, it's going to take him altering who I am. It's going to take him changing me. And it's the same with all of us. And he does that through the cross. Not just his cross, but our cross. Because remember, we have to deny ourselves. That means we're going to take on some suffering. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Yet I do not live. It is Christ who lives in me. We don't have an option here. If you just want to be comfortable, you're in the wrong religion. If you just want it to be easy, you, you pick the wrong path. Christ calls us to more. He calls us to die to ourselves. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And then he says, then follow me. So I've gotten rid of all my desires. I'm laying my life down and I'm, I'm no longer concerned for me. I'm only concerned for what he wants of me. And yes, that doesn't mean you don't take care of yourself. No, it's a whole lot easier to do his work if you can actually get up and move around and do it, right? If you keep yourself healthy, that's a good thing. But we don't do it just to be comfortable. We do it to serve him. We do it to follow Jesus. I must follow Jesus. All of this, all of this leads us to the place where we actually do what he wants us to do. Because until we are willing to follow Jesus, God is not our God. We are. You know, this communion we're about to do, it reminds us of his example, doesn't it? Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about uh, doing nothing out of selfish ambition, but instead thinking of others more highly than yourselves. And then he says, have this attitude among you which was in Christ Jesus. What attitude? The attitude that though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as something to be grasped, something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he became a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' example is that I deny myself and take up my cross to follow my Father. So we must follow him in that example. Deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. This communion reminds us of that. It reminds us of the call, not only to remember what he's done, but to look like him, to be like him, to follow him. We're going to pray. This is the time right now. This is the time to confess sin. This is the time to recognize when you haven't been following God. Pray with me. Father, you know our hearts. Father, you know our sins. You know when we worship ourselves when we base our identities in, in who we are, what we do, or what we like, or how we feel, you know when we only seek comfort or pleasure and, and we completely ignore, completely bypass what would be good for others just because it's inconvenient, or just because we don't want to go through the trouble, especially when it's what you require of us. God, you know when we make ourselves to be our own God. When we pay our offerings and our tithes to us, when we sing our hymns, and we live our lives in service to self rather than to you. Father, we repent of our sin, self-worship. We ask that you, this morning, 
would be our God. We deny ourselves. God, we need your help. We take up our cross daily. God, we need your help there too. We follow Jesus. Lord, we don't want to be like the man that gains everything else and loses our soul. And the one that would keep his life but loses it. Father, we want to follow you. So we give you our lives. We give you our hearts. We give you our identities. We give you everything that we are. We give you our comfort and our pleasure. We give you all those things. We give you the throne of our hearts. You be God to us and not ourselves. As we take communion this morning, we ask that you give us clean hearts, that we may take in gratitude with anticipation on what's to come. Thank you for being such a good God. Help us not get in your way. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.